welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. Rich is excited to have as his guest today, Michelle Arquette Palermo, and she's the head of the Freshwater Forum at Cranbrook Institute of Science in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. As head of the Freshwater Forum, Michelle oversees all aspects of the forum's activities, including fund development and grant writing and educational programs, teacher professional development, exhibitions, and research and stakeholder engagement. She's a graduate of Northern Michigan University with a background in ecology and aquatic biology and specializes in water quality assessments. She's also a graduate of the Walden University with a master's in nonprofit management and leadership. And in 2014, Michelle was recognized by the Michigan Alliance for Environmental and Outdoor Education for excellence in her field. And in 2013, awarded the Michigan Water Environment Association Educational Professional of the Year Award. In 2012, Michelle was recognized by General Motors and Earth Force as the Chevy Green Educator of the Year. And in 2007, she earned the Johanna Roskop Award for her volunteer efforts with the Clinton River Watershed Council. For over 20 years, she's worked in Southeast Michigan, specializing in collaborating with stakeholder groups to advance scientific knowledge, education, and stewardship of our communities and natural resources. So on the common bridge in the last couple months, Rich has discussed the effects of COVID-19 and what it's had on our society, but this is the first time he's dealt with environmental aspects of the virus. And I think you're really gonna like this. We join Rich and Michelle's conversation in progress. Michelle, really appreciate you coming on the common bridge today. As you know, on prior episodes, we've been talking about the pandemic and its impact on our society. We've talked about things like the medical system and the changes that have been employed in courts and in the jails. Uh, of course, the economic impact and uh, the rising public health issues. But we really appreciate you coming on today to talk about the environmental impact. And in some respects, that's sounding like a real positive story. And I am not an environmental scientist, but I'd sure like to understand. What do we know today and, and what are you seeing out there? So studies are just now really starting to come out probably in about the last month. And the story that's being told through the uh, analysis of the different data sets that are being collected is mostly about air and air quality and uh, most notably uh, carbon dioxide emissions as well as uh, nitrogen dioxide emissions. And those are both uh, very closely tied to manufacturing and also transportation. And when you basically shut down <laughs> all the major economies across our planet, you are going to see a decrease in those emissions because we are not manufacturing to the level. Um, there's been some really great, uh, even aerial photographs of comparing traffic in China during the shutdown uh, versus, you know, pre-COVID. And that is also being seen all across Europe and the United States. So we know that emissions are down. So clean air is of course tied to that as we have less pollutants going into the air 
we have cleaner air. Some places have blue sky that have not seen blue sky in a very long time, um, which of course is not really a good thing. If you think about it, you know, our air pollution has been so severe in some communities in this, um, on this planet that they haven't been able to see blue sky in a long time. So I think it's really kind of giving us a glimpse into what we could be. It, it is really an exciting, uh, positive output of a very bad situation. Um, I was reading that the carbon emissions have dropped 17%, and that's a global measure, uh, during the periods in early April, um, and that those uh, fuels like oil and gas and coal um, are, are just not being used. And to your point, it's about uh, auto traffic and it's about uh, manufacturing. I was also surprised to learn that uh, air transportation only represents about 10% of the carbon emissions. That that surprised me. I thought it would be much higher. But that is also having an impact too. Um, I was reading, you know, talking about an airplane diet. We're all on an airplane diet. <laughs> um, and so, yes, while it doesn't have you know, the impact, you know, a huge impact on uh, carbon emissions. It, I mean, 10% is still significant and every little bit is helping. Uh, and so including air travel, I think is contributing it to it. But like I said, I don't want to get too excited. Uh, what it is, is it's just a glimpse into what we could be or we could strive for. Well, I, I concur with you. And I've read something that is a little disheartening that says, as we are reopening or coming back online, that pollution levels are going back up and that for the year, we are going to end lower than 2019 levels, but we're going to put ourselves right back in the same situation. And it just seems like a, a tragic miss if we don't try to incorporate some of these changes in a policy way, um, in, a, in a more permanent fashion. Have you given much thought to what might be done to sustain some of the gains that have been made around the world in uh, carbon emissions and in air quality improvement? From a policy perspective, I think that this gives us an opportunity to look at, well, what if we did have stricter air quality standards? Historical medical research has shown us that poor air quality results in taking about three years off our lives. So if you think about the connection here, if poor air quality results in making us more susceptible to disease and then having less, man, less pollution input into the environment is better ultimately for human health, which make us less susceptible to disease. So I want us to think about policy changes that could improve air quality, which would ultimately improve human health, making us less susceptible to disease overall. So that's where I'm really interested in seeing more and more research done because we're doing the medical research on people getting COVID where the air quality is poorer. And then 
we're watching the response to being shut down, improving air quality because we're doing less manufacturing, less transportation. Also, I think about it as a Michigander and home of the auto industry. And of course, being sensitive to that, we know that mass transit is also a better alternative for carbon emissions and not so many cars on the road. So this could have, I think, long-term implications if we really think about concentrating on air quality and how to improve that through, if it's, you know, uh, more stringent um, requirements of manufacturing, uh, incentives for people to use public transportation and not have three cars in the driveway. So I think that we have some real opportunity here to take this look into figuring out how we can improve overall health of the planet and humans. Well, I am in agreement with you on the the talking about incentives and you know if you tax something you get less of it if you subsidize it you get more of it and i see this as an opportunity not only for uh, improved uh, environment uh, but as you pointed out the direct link to health uh, and also to the quality of life uh, just to you know muse for a little bit if there were incentives for manufacturers to create more modern plants that emit less carbons and retire some of the older plants. Uh, if there were incentives to move into more densely populated uh, inner suburbs or uh, into core cities, uh, where we had policies, both state and federal, that incented developers to go to virgin farmland and put in subdivisions rather than using existing infrastructure, roads and sewers um, and electric lines and building in the cities. We have taxes on gasoline and that's fraught with uh, perhaps a, a regressive outcome. But if, if you think about the number of jobs that in our current information economy uh, that people have discovered can be done without that commuting time, uh, without the traffic jams, without all of that carbon emission. Perhaps there's some tax incentive for working at home or for a, uh, an employer to not require their people to travel in. I, I just think about the quality of life. If I don't have to plan my necessary trips around that inevitable traffic jam, and I think about the quality of life with people not wasting two to four hours a day in the car, and I think about that, that pollution rate coming down, and what can we do now that would head that off and I think you've given some good ideas, and, and I'm sure there are others. But I think it's, it's what we need to be asking those people that we elect to preserve these gains. And, and there, are, there are immediate things. As, and if you look at things like uh, mass transportation, uh, those are very, very long-term projects. They take uh, a lot of capital to put in place. 
And because of the way commuting patterns have developed in so many areas around the car, many of them are impractical. You look what happened in Hawaii, in California, and I know in Michigan, we've tried things over time, and we're just not a suburb to center city commuting, although on the East Coast, you know, the mass transit works really well. So anyway, lots of ideas out there. Michelle, if we could shift a little bit around water, and I know this is an area that you are, uh, and no pun intended, steeped in, uh, (laughs) that you know quite a bit about. And have we any data today or any anecdotal evidence that perhaps this uh, economic pause or shutdown has improved our water quality? So I'm seeing some, there are some research, um, some papers coming out a little bit about water. Not a whole lot, um, but we've seen a lot on the internet. And and there is one uh, research paper that I've read in particular that kind of backs up a little bit. Um, we've all seen on uh, the internet that you, you know, the canals in Venice are clear, um, you know, and that people can actually see the fish. And from uh, a practical standpoint, that really does make a whole lot of sense as boats people, fish, everything moves through the water, we're stirring up the set, sediment in the bottom. We call that turbidity right after rains, which we, we, you know, we just had a couple of days of a whole lot of rain that fell in this state. If you look at every river and a lot of the lakes, they're going to be very brown. They're very turbid right now because there's a whole lot of activity in that water. It is constantly stirring up the sediments on the bottom. So in Venice, without all the boats and without all the tourists and without all the traffic in the canals, the water is going to settle and the sediments will fall to the bottom and the water column um, is a lot clearer. So they're finding that there was a paper published in Science of the Total Environment looking at some lakes in uh, India and China, and they're finding the very same thing with uh, industry uh, not inputting to, into the water, stirring up sediments, refining that there is a lot more clarity in the water because uh, industry, boating, tourists, all those types of things aren't stirring it up. So it does make a lot of sense that water would be clearer. Um, as far as industrial inputs, there is some research being done in India showing that water quality as far as contaminants, um, I shouldn't say contaminants, sorry, uh, more of nutrients is lower. Um, And that's because, again, industrial inputs aren't as uh, prominent right now. In the United States, I'm not finding any research on that. um, And that, I wouldn't expect to really see a whole lot of change in that realm, mainly because we do have a lot of industrial uh, requirements, permit requirements for any sort of manufacturing that they have water quality standards that they have to meet. And uh, thanks to the Clean Water Act of 1972, um, the pollution issues of our surface water is somewhat tied to industrial practices, but it's not. It's more of the non-point source pollution, rainwater, what's washing off the land. 
that really has the biggest impact on water quality. So while we might see a slight improvement, I wouldn't expect to see a huge improvement, mainly because we have pretty stringent um, re, you know, restrictions on what corporations, manufacturing, anybody can discharge to what we call waters of the state. That is a, a fascinating um, uh, assessment. What about the fresh water supplies? And I know that you are deeply involved with uh, what is going on in the Great Lakes, which I understand is the largest freshwater supplies in the world. And in recent days, actually last night prior to recording this, we saw some very unusual amounts of rainwater that have burst a couple of dams here in Michigan. Is there a way to to describe any impact, risks, or benefits to the freshwater supply, and does it relate in any way to what we're seeing happen uh, with the rainfall and with the the dam failures? And I know that's a broad question, but it's something I'm curious about. It's things that have never happened in my lifetime. So we have historical, um, prior to even the rains that have fallen this week, earlier this week, um, we have record levels, uh, Great Lakes water levels right now. People uh, in Lake Michigan are losing their homes. Beaches are a lot smaller, which I was reading an article this morning. If we're opening up the beaches, but there's very little beach left because of the high water levels, how are we going to possibly socially distance? I don't know the answer to that, but it, they did bring up a very good point. Uh, Lake Huron um, is the same. Well, I haven't seen as many homes fall into Lake Huron as I have in Lake Michigan, um, reading the news. But um, they're losing significant amounts of beach as well. Here's where I see an impact. We have high water levels and we're under a stay-at-home order. Universities had to, have had to suspend research. So in Michigan, we do our field season starts usually March or April. This is when the Department of Environmental Water Quality goes out and does water quality assessments. It's when Michigan State, U of M, Central, all the universities are going out and doing their field work and doing their research. They've had to cancel that. And so we're not going to really be able to do a lot of the research to be able to gather the data and the information that we might need in order to understand what's happening because of high water levels or any sort of response to the pandemic and the stay at home and what we're doing. So we're going to have a gap in data. Some researchers are able to still do some of their uh, research, but we've had conferences on the Great Lakes have been canceled. So there are a, a lot of other impacts might not necessarily um, seem connected, but they really are. And another one I was reading about too, is that the boots on the ground people who I think of, uh, Trout Unlimited, our local land conservancies, our watershed councils, so they're all staying home. And their volunteer programs that clean up litter or do water quality monitoring are not happening. Those activities are not happening. So we're losing that as well. Plus, 
the donations to these smaller organizations are also down for conservation groups. Think of Ducks Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, the people who are out there really promoting conservation, they're not able to do their work. And so while we might see some environmental impacts from this pandemic, kind of an improvement, I'm concerned three months down the road, four months down the road, a year down the road on this impact that we're going to have from our smaller groups collecting actual scientific data. So in, in some respects, we've just been blinded from gathering information. And the only way we're seeing it definitively is with catastrophes like the dams breaking up near Midland. That's yeah. a scary situation. It is a scary situation. I mean, we're kind of caught. And I, and again, I, um, I was, <laughs> I went down the rabbit hole this morning, of, you know, of course, being a person who's an aquatic biologist and very interested in rivers and health and restoration and protection, you know, I really wanted to try to understand this whole situation and what's going up there on the Chittabawassee and the Cedar, you know, and the other rivers up there. And then you think about, okay, these people have all been displaced. Now we have the shelters for them. And then the shelters have to put in protections for COVID-19. They're creating shelters where they have to congregate people, but they have to keep them socially distant. What's the impact of that? That, that, was something I was thinking about this morning as well as I was doing my morning reading in that we know that COVID is more apt to be caught at home because of the uh, accumulative viral load. We know that close quarters like prisons, nursing homes, and the like are even more susceptible. And when they were talking about the shelters being put up, I just had the vision of the, you know, the high school gym with the cots, you know, towed ahead and thought that can't be good in this situation. Michelle, I re remember in recent years that there was a lot of discussion about the low levels of the inland lakes and rivers and that thwarting both uh, recreation and fishing, and also the Great Lakes, uh, particularly Lake Huron, losing its level and creating really long beaches. And now we seem to have swung too far to the other side. Is there an optimal level for Great Lakes and freshwater uh, lakes? Uh, and is that something that can be addressed, or is the policy really better designed to mitigate the extremes? And if climate change plays a part in that, I know that our listeners would love to hear about that as well. So Great Lakes levels, inland lakes, rivers, um, we're all, we're, all of these are um, part of the environment and ecosystems. And what we know about them is that they're dynamic. They're not static. They are going to change. And so even our planning resources about, you know, from our plan, our individual township and county planning documents say, you know, build for 
the 10 year flood or the 20 year flood, or you're in the hundred year plane, you hear all, all of those terms. We do take water and the extremes into account, but what we're finding in the climate impacts is that we have to plan for those extremes and we have to really think about we've always thought about the 100-year flood and that's what we've always talked about is we have to plan for the 100-year flood well what we saw in metro detroit probably four years ago five years ago when we had five inches of rain and we had 14 feet of water at the uh, 696 and i-75 interchange where divers had to go down and clean the drains to get the water out of there. They called that a 300-year storm. They're calling what happened in Midland a 500-year storm. So I think we really need to plan for those extremes because climate, it, what it's showing us is that our storms are becoming more frequent and more intense. If I read yesterday, the gauge, it was, I can't remember exactly what city it was, but it was East Tawas, Augray, somewhere up that region, they, in a 24-hour period, got over eight inches of rain. That event that I talked about in Southeast Michigan was five inches of rain. And then we also have to think from a planning perspective, obviously, Royal Oak, where the mixing bowl of 696 and I-75 come to bed, is very different than East Tawa. We can't come up with a one-size-fit-all plan. It's not going to work. What we have to do is take different types of environments. Is it a super urban environment? Is it a rural environment? How can we best plan, build development, and think about these extremes? I don't think we can plan and implement for the 500-year storm all the time. That would be very expensive. And I don't think that we could convince the greater public that that's what we need to do. And I don't know that we really need to do that. But we need to start thinking about our footprint and how we can better adapt to more extreme events. That is uh, very insightful. And I also have some experience in recent years in Southern California with 300-year flood followed by the 100-year flood. And the short version is the 300-year flood overwhelmed uh, some of the water runoff design uh, terribly. And I've talked about the need for infrastructure on this podcast. And I think a potential policy that would benefit so many areas is for the federal government to finally use these historic low interest rates, borrow in 50 or 100 year bonds dedicated to infrastructure uh, because we can't keep putting our finger in the dike literally and dealing with, as we are in Michigan today, with 95-year-old dams uh, flooding our cities. Michelle, this has been a great conversation. And if you were going to recommend an action or actions for people today, is there anything that comes to mind that our, our listeners might take away and say that, yeah, this is something that they can do to help improve the situation? Oh, this is always my favorite question. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
And whether I'm talking to uh, nine-year-olds or 90-year-olds, my experience is what I tell people to do is to just take a moment and think and to not point fingers. We all do that, right? Well, is to actually look in the mirror and think about what can I do to help be part of the change? What are the simple things? Because we often talk about what is the collective we? What can we do? We need to turn off the lights. Everybody leaves the room and the light's still on. Well, who's the collective we? And I tell people that I meet, you need to start talking about the I. What can I do? What am I committing to do? Am I committing to riding my bike more? Am I committed to donating my time or my money to my local conservation group? Am I going to start watching the planning commission meetings um, where I live to make sure that they're thinking about sustainability long-term? Am I purchasing a vehicle that gets more miles to the gallon? Am I going to talk to my employer about working from home more? There are a lot of things that individual people can do to shrink their own personal input. And as long as we want all the stuff, I just call it the stuff, as long as we want stuff, there's going to be people who make stuff. And we're going to continue to manufacture stuff. So what is the stuff that I can live without? And how can I make my world a better place and my environment? a better place and my footprint smaller. And if we all think about that, the collective we will benefit. Michelle, that is outstanding. I'm standing here cheering you on as you talk through that. And I particularly like the aspects, of course, of personal responsibility, not pointing fingers. It's not going to be something like, oh, if we only elect this person or kick that, that person out of office. It's we, the people, need to lean in and make that change and to be the change. And I believe this uh, COVID opportunity, while it's caused so much death and devastation, uh, perhaps uh, has opened a door. Um, as we wrap up today, any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with. This has just been a great conversation and very grateful that you decided to uh, devote some of your time today on the Common Bridge. I'm hopeful. I think the one thing that I've recognized as the person who spends a lot of time kayaking, hiking, biking, all those things, is those places are really crowded right now. And while the loner in me is a little perturbed from time to time, the environmentalist in me loves the fact that I love seeing people outside. I love seeing people on the water, on the trails. And I'm hopeful that those people will continue to enjoy that and do that personal reflection that I just talked about and make that change. Michelle, very grateful for you appearing today on the Common Bridge. I hope we can continue this dialogue. Uh, I hope that People will look up the environmental and conservation groups that you've mentioned. Of course, visit the beautiful campus of Cranbrook in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, uh, and the Science Institute. 
uh, great education, great displays, really a world-class uh, organization. This has been The Common Bridge. I'm Rich Helpy, and we thank you for listening. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.